Thank you, Landon. We're going to pull an audible, and I'm going to go ahead and have you speak today. Okay. No, <laughs> um, yeah, good morning, guys. My wife and I, Kristen, we were trying to determine if uh, a lot of people were out of town because of the July 4th weekend, or they got word that I was speaking. <laughs> yeah, so now I'm wondering. Uh, we're going to have a talk with some folks when they get back. <clears throat> Um, yeah, Psalm 75, uh, we're 10 verses, I, try, I, I did shorten this, no matter how long it goes today, I want you to know, like, I shortened it, so just so you know, um, if I had to put a title on Psalm 75, what we just heard Landon read to us, I'd have to say, the great God, the great and gracious judge, he's a great and gracious judge, this is whereby people experience the judgment of God as one condemned or the salvation of God as one forgiven. It's only one of those two places. Um, so here's a question that I, that I ask as I approach this text right out of the gate. How is it that a psalm, a song so full of judgment includes thanksgiving and praise? Right? I thought about that as I was coming this morning. I was like, hey, man, I think like the last three or four times I spoke, it involved judgment. So you're like, man, this guy's bringing judgment again. Um, you can't escape it from this psalm. This psalm is full of judgment. Um, and yet it's full of thanksgiving and praise. Uh, we just sang a song. It, it says, we give thanks for the Lord is good, right? That rubs us the right way. We're like, yes, man, God is good. Like, we give you thanks. But these guys were like, we give you thanks. And God's like, I'm bringing judgment. And then they're like, well, we still give you praise. Like, we rejoice forever. Um, judgments, it's not normally a conversation that we think brings us hope, right? How many of you guys like to hear about judgment? Raise a hand. <laughs> That's honest. Um, yeah, no one likes to hear about it. It doesn't invite us to be thankful. In fact, Many people that I've heard at some point in the past, um, especially people who may not even give allegiance to God, they use Matthew 7, 1 um, a lot, and it says, uh, do not judge so that you're not judged, or judge not, that you be not judged. And they use this as a means uh, to appeal for not being judged and for not giving judgment, wherein no one has a right to speak into someone else's life or even claim that God can speak into it without becoming judgmental. You guys feel that? Yeah? <clears throat> Let me see some of this. Sorry. I got lights in my eyes. So you got to do it big or I can't tell. Okay, good. <clears throat> or you can do the other one just as good. I just won't be uh, as excited. <clears throat> um, truth be told, the context of Matthew 7, it goes on to say that with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So we really shouldn't judge, right? Ever. None of us should judge. But the problem is, is that none of us have been free from giving judgment. It comes naturally for us. It, it comes easy for us, right? We're judgmental people. Even if you think not so, <clears throat> man, it, it comes easy. Uh, try waiting in a line 
with a crowd of people for a long time, and you're in a, a line of people waiting to get somewhere for like an hour, and then you have a few people who cut in that line up front, right? You guys ever had that happen? In, in the cutting line, like, yeah. <clears throat> I'm sure all of us in here are not going to protest. So, like, you know what, man, no biggie. I'll shrug it off. <laughs> uh, that's not going to happen, right? You know injustice when you see it. Um, remember, remember the last time you saw something happen, and you thought to yourself, Man, that's messed up, right? Man, that's messed up. That's, that's not right. Something should, something should be done. Like, there's a, an immediate thing when we see something happen that's unjust. We're like, something should take place. There should be some kind of reprimand. We do it all the time. Like, judgment happens. You can't let something go. Uh, you can't let it go without thinking something's unjust or unfair and that justice should happen. We recognize when something is not fair, and we let it be known. How many times have you guys said or have ever heard the word spoken, it's not fair? You guys ever heard that before? Raise a hand. It's not fair. How many of you guys have said that? Raise a hand. You probably said that today. <laughs> you just say it so much you don't even remember. Um, our oldest, Nathan, is making a habit of saying that on a daily. Like, Dad, that's just not fair. Like, that's not fair. I'm like, dude, you got a, a long road ahead of you of unfairness that's about to hit you, right? Um, we're used to that. Man, it's not fair. It's messed up. I would guess that most, if not all, people desire fairness, right? Man, can't things just be fair across the board? That is until it comes to a holy God giving his fair judgment to a sinful people. And that's when judgment rubs us the wrong way. No one wants to hear about the judgment of God. Like, I just want things to be fair. But when it comes to God being absolutely fair, we're like, hold on. When I said I meant to be fair, I didn't mean to that extent. All right? <clears throat> I remember as a child, uh, when I was acting up in the grocery store with my siblings, and I heard these words from my dad. It's like, wait till we get home. <laughs> you guys ever had that? Am I by myself? Anybody ever had a mom or dad say that? You're acting up, and they say, hey, man, wait till we get home. And so, like, the whole ride home, like, I'm not looking forward to this. I'm like, there's no good that's about to come out of the situation. Um, and so, you know what happens when I get home and I get out of the car? I get out on one side, my dad gets out on the other, and we're, he's chasing me. <laughs> All right? <clears throat> I'm going to run as long as I can. Because I'm prolonging this punishment that I know is about to go down, right? I'm running from judgment, but eventually the gig's up, and I have to face the music. That's the way it always was. Well, that's the eventual outcome for the proud and wicked of Psalm 75. A judgment coming due. A judgment coming due. And yet, for the people of God, this is huge, this is important, and yet for the people of God, the righteous before God, there is thanksgiving, both in the sense of being delivered from wicked people, but also being delivered from the judgment of wickedness. It's like the people of God had a, a reason to celebrate. They were going to be delivered from the wickedness around them, but they were going to themselves be delivered from their own wickedness, from the judgment of their own wickedness. So they had a reason to be thankful. 
So I want to ask, that's uh, a good rule of thumb to do as you're studying a passage. Who are the characters that play in the psalm? Um, can we get that up? Do we have Psalm 75? Sweet. Um, who are the characters that play in the psalm? We have the we. Uh, if you're looking at your own Bible, yeah, just look down at that. We give thanks to you, O God. So you have the we, including Asaph and the congregation of God's people. Uh, you have God himself. You have the boastful and the wicked uh, down in verse uh, 4 and 5. And you have the righteous. So what does this passage reveal to us about God? Well, we see that his name is near. He has done wondrous things, wondrous deeds. He has appointed a time for judgment. He will judge with equity. He keeps steady the pillars of the earth. He speaks to, even warns, the boastful and the wicked. He puts down one and he lifts up another. There's a cup of judgment that God will pour out, of which the wicked will drink completely. He will cut off the horns of the wicked. He will lift the horns of the righteous. That's what we see that's revealed about God, who God is in this passage. What does the passage reveal to us about Asaph and the congregation? They give thanks. They recount or declare God's deeds. Asaph, or the congregation, will declare what God has done and will do forever. Asaph, or the congregation, will sing praises. What does this passage reveal us to us about the boastful and the wicked? They boast. They boast in their strength, and they display their power in opposition to God. They reject and rebel against God's authority. God warns them. They look for promotion from among other places or other people rather than God. Their strength, their power, their boasting will be cut off. They will drink judgment from the cup of the Lord. And finally, what does this passage reveal about the righteous? In contrast to the wicked, they do not boast in their strength, and God will lift their strength up. So this psalm is honestly pretty clear-cut. There's the boastful and wicked, and there's the righteous. There's the judgment for the wicked, and there's salvation for the redeemed. That, that's what we're dealing with uh, this morning. And that's why I ask out of the gates, how do we have a, a psalm so full of judgment also include thanksgiving? Because again, man, you hear judgment, you're like, ah, that's a sore subject. Like, let's don't do that. You're going to damper the mood of the room. Unless you're with the righteous and you're like, I have something to be thankful for. I'm not only going to be delivered from the wicked, but I'm also delivered from the judgment of my own wickedness. Amen? <clears throat> The psalm begins with thanksgiving, as God's name is near. God's name represents his character. It's who he is. His deeds are being recounted and declared, remembering what has been done. Um, sometimes when it says recounting deeds, uh, they're usually referring to like God's creation. They're like, man, God is so awesome. He put all the stars in the sky, and he named every one of them. God's so awesome in his creation, like he's stretching out the heavens like a curtain, right? And you're like, Wow. You just sit before God in amazement. 
Or sometimes when they talk about his wondrous deeds, they're talking about God's deliverance of his people from Egypt, for sure, is one, their deliverance from slavery. And they're remembering that God is wonderful because he has done wonderful things. But here they're also talking about what's going to come. It's interesting that they're recounting God's deeds, like what God has already done, while at the same time, God is the one speaking about a coming judgment. And they're singing about thanksgiving. So when considering the name of God or the nearness of God, how does that stir you up? I want to ask you that for a second, just for you to stew on. When you talk about the nearness of God or his name, I'm like, God is near to you. How does that sit with you? How does that stir you up? I'm going to give you a couple of statements that's going to help identify the condition of your heart regarding our attitude toward the nearness of God, okay? Do we profane the name of God or do we honor his name? When we think about God's nearness to us, we're like, man, I want to honor him or like I would rather profane him. And what does our life show? We want to honor him or we want to dishonor him? Does his name bring fear of judgment or delight and joy? That's a huge one, right? People are like, man, don't talk about God's nearness. Like that makes me fearful because there's a fear of judgment. So does God's name, his nearness, bring a fear of judgment or is it delight and joy? You're like, yes, man, I... I love the nearness of God. Uh, Justin talked about this out of Psalm 73. Asaph was like, the nearness of God is my good. Something I don't want to be away from. Uh, Does the name of God or his nearness cause one to flee or cause one to worship? So when you think about that, you're like, man, if God is coming near, then I'm going away. Or are you in the position, you're like, man, if God's coming near, I'm going to, to him. Flee your worship. Uh, is God's name reviled to you, or is his name revered by you? In Psalm 74, the enemy of God was reviling his name. The poor and needy were praising his name. Um, Psalm 7410, I think we have some of these verses. So, yeah, sweet. Thank you, brother. Um, Asaph says this in Psalm 74, how long, O God, is the foe to scoff? 74.18 says, remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. And then he adds in 22, arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. All day they scoff at you. And Asaph was the type of guy, like in a lot of his Psalms, he's like, when, when are you going to do something? Like, your name is being reviled, defiled by people, and like, I don't see you doing anything. <clears throat> God is not in the dark about any wickedness. But if you look at Psalm 75 too, it says he has an appointed time that he's going to judge with equity. How does the knowledge of God's judgment give us hope? let alone cause us to give thanks. Because there's coming a time when God's going to set everything right. And that's good news. Because we live in a messed up world. 
right? God's going to set everything right. He will judge with complete fairness, complete fairness. There's not going to be any picketing like for God or against God. There's not going to be these two sides of people who are protesting for or against God. God will judge with complete fairness, and he will not be swayed by anyone. There will be no voice to speak against him, no voice that's going to outshout him. There's going to be no collaboration of man to overpower him. There's going to be no room for the pleading for God to be tolerant or to say that he's intolerant. All right, you guys hear that a lot today? <laughs> God's going to judge with complete judgment. Everything will be treated with complete fairness by the unswayed will of God, the great judge. Even in the midst of the unfairness that takes place on earth, even with the boasting of the proud and the wicked, it is the Lord who holds the world up. Look at Psalm 75.3. When the earth totters, some translations will say melts or dissolves. When the earth totters, when it shakes, and all its inhabitants, it is I. God said, it is I who holds steady its pillars. Quite simply, as a matter of fact, Psalm 46 and 6 Look at this. I, I love the simplicity of this verse. It's just like, here's how it is. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. God utters his voice, and the earth melts. <laughs> right? The nations rage. I, I think about, like, the world in ruin or the world in chaos or situations in chaos. How many of you guys ever feel like your life is in chaos? Anybody in the room? You ever feel like chaos happens, and then it wraps up and like chaos keeps happening? <laughs> You're like, man, it's surrounding me, right? And God is outside of that and not shaking, shaken by it. God speaks and the earth melts. God, the judge, is the only unshakable being. Do you think about that for a second? That puts some perspective on it. Like God is the only unshakable being. While the rest of us are subject to shaking and we're subject to the shaking of the earth. You guys ever went through an earthquake before? Who's been through an earthquake? Because I know we have a lot of California folks in here too. All right, which one of you guys, when you were going through an earthquake, you, you just decided, you know what? Not, not me. <laughs> I'm not going to shake. I'm not going to do it. You can quake earth, but this guy's not... <laughs> It's going to happen, all right? If the earth shakes, guess what? You're shaking. God is the only unshakable one. We would do well to remember that though this psalm speaks of a coming judgment of God, I wanted to point out that God's judgments are also temporal and present here now. There is a coming judgment, but there's judgment that happens here and now. Um, I've spoken of uh, Romans 1 before, uh, but I think it's appropriate when we think about the, uh, what's happening in the world. Um, Romans 1.18 says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteous, unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. And then it says, like, 
God gives them up to some things. There's some temporal judgment that happens as a, re- a result of people deciding they know God exists, but they say, you know what? I'm not going to honor him. I'm not going to give him thanks. That's Romans 1 for you. And it says, uh, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. God gave them up to that. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God gave them up to a corrupt mind so they do what's not right. This is a temporal, a present judgment. Uh, you guys remember King Nebuchadnezzar? King Nebi? Uh, I think we have this passage too, too but uh, here's another like temporal judgment. Happens quite often. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, said to be one of the greatest and most powerful Babylonian kings. The king who thought by his own strength and by his own glory that he had received such a great kingdom, but he was brought low. This is what uh, Daniel says in chapter 4. Is not this great Babylon, you can actually say it this way, is not, this, is not Babylon great? That's what he's saying, this king. He's like, man, Babylon's awesome. And he says, um, <clears throat> which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Look at what I did, and this is for me, right? And then there's a response from heaven. While these words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it has spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That's a temporal judgment for this guy. And it reminds me of the implication that we see in Psalm 75, 6 um, for these guys who are looking to the east, looking to the west, looking from the wilderness for lifting up for promotion. Um, the proud and wicked are lifted, looking to be lifted up, not only apart from God, but in opposition to him. Looking for promotion from other sources at the expense of ignoring God's provision. James 1.17 says that every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights. Neither self-promotion nor the promotion of others should be what is sought after. At the right time, it's the Lord who lifts up. Uh, David put it, puts it this way in Psalm 52. He says, see the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it's good in the presence of the godly. Where does our promotion come from? Where do we look for our lifting up? Do we lift up ourselves? Do we look for lifting up from other people? Or are we waiting on God realizing that He? His promotion is the only one that we need. Jesus' words also uh, give some help on this from a passage in Luke 
Um, this is regarding the self-righteous who exalts himself and the humble seeking forgiveness. Jesus told this parable about two men who went to the temple to pray, and then the Pharisee, uh, he was standing by himself, and he prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Man, I'm, I'm not like other people who are like, and I actually, I do this too, uh, by the way. I, uh, what is that spot? I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Self-promotion. I'm not like this guy. But the tax collector, he was standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, and he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, this one without self-promotion, this one who was not lifting himself up above another, this one who wasn't giving his own credentials to righteousness, he's like, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And then we look at this cup of Psalm 75, verse 8. It says, In the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foamy wine, well mixed, and God pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. This shows to me like there's a finality. This cup that Asaph's talking about, this cup of judgment, it's exhaustive. It's the full and completely spent wrath of God. It's unrestrained, it's unrelenting. It's the full strength of God's judgment. And when it talks about the wicked drinking the dregs, like they're going to drink this cup and they're going to drink it down to the dregs, the dregs or lees of the wine are the settled leftover sediments in wine, which I don't know a lot about wine. Um, I had to read this because I'm, I'm not a wine drinker. Uh, dead yeast cells left over from the fermentation process. Leaving the lees in for an exterior period of time is said to enhance complexity and give extra aroma. And this, this is talking about the cup of God's judgment, the coming judgment that is due for the wicked is a wine that is stewing. It's a wine that's been sitting for so long that it's foaming over the top. And not only will the wicked have a taste, but it says they're going to drink it down to the dregs. Uh, this, this made me think about uh, our gross refrigerator that we have at home. Um, I'm sure you guys are like us. I mean, you guys have something in the back of your fridge right now that you forgot was back there. You, 
And now that I say this, you're going to go find it this afternoon. <clears throat> I, uh, I already knew we had some stuff when I wrote this. And then I happened to find something this morning. I'm like, see, there it is. We got gross stuff in the back. It's been sitting there forever. Um, one of these was a salad dressing. <laughs> yeah, it was nice. I took it out. It's been there for so long, like I went to turn it over, and it, <laughs> it wouldn't even dump. <clears throat> yeah, so it had like a nice layer on top, you know, and the, the sediments were on the bottom. And I thought to myself, like, man, if a wicket had to drink from a cup like this, I think about how long it would take to them, for them to get to the bottom of it. The full, exhaustive, unrestrained judgment of God that's coming. Whatever the liquid mixture is for us, we know it's pungent. And here's the truth. The arrogance and wrath of man, it's going to be spent and God will remain unscathed by it. Right? Men can be wrathful, they can be proud. God's not going to be phased. And then the other truth is the wrath of God will be spent and no man will escape from it. Psalm 76, 7 says, who can stand before you when once your anger is roused? Who can stand before God once his anger is roused? We see instances of God holding back his wrath and anger. I believe I have Psalm 78, 38, uh, when God was talking to his people. It says, yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. We sing about God's mercy enduring forever. God is a very merciful God. But there is a coming judgment. There's a cup to be poured out, and it will be drank to the bottom. Um, here's the thing. We don't have to do anything different right now or anything additional to partake of the cup of God's wrath. Our sins have separated us from God, and our sins have condemned us our guilt has already earned us the wrath of God's just anger and judgment. But thankfully, and this is why it's awesome for us to give thanks when we talk about judgment, because if I just left it there, we would all leave and be like, oh, I, man, dude, you're talking about judgment and it's heavy. It's weighty. But there's always a but God, Right? But God. So thankfully, we see in Romans 3 that God had passed over former sins, and at the cross, he rightly poured out his anger and his wrath on Jesus. The sacrificial substitute that he provided to appease his wrath. This was to show that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And this answers the question that so many people have asked so many times, and they'll still ask. They're like, man, doesn't God have the ability to just forgive people without having Jesus die on a cross? Right? Doesn't God have that ability just to say, you know what, I forgive you without Jesus having to die on the cross? God loves, and he's acted because of his love. But God is also just, and he's acted because he's just, and he will act because he's just. God made a display of his justice at the cross and will make a display of his justice when his cup of burning anger 
is poured out on those deserving his just judgment. Here we see not only the great judge, but we see the gracious judge. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for our sake, so if you're in here this morning and you hear like judgment, judgment, what do we do? For our sake, God made him, speaking of Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. Jesus never sinned, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 3.18 says that for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, us, that he might bring us to God. In just a little bit, we're going to be celebrating communion together, the Lord's Supper. And in this meal, Jesus with his disciples, they were eating the bread, drinking the wine. And we get to look back and remember his broken body for us, the blood that was poured out for us. And even as Jesus and his disciples were eating this meal together just before his death, uh, they were celebrating the Passover Remembering God's redemption of his people from the slavery to Egypt, but also remembering the blood of lambs that God requested be put across the doorpost in order that the plague of death might pass over them while striking the land of Egypt. In Jesus' meal with his disciples, Jesus speaks about a different cup, a new covenant, a cup by which the blood of Jesus is poured out and people are freed from the slavery of sin, and they're free from the wrath of God's judgment, which passes over them and on to Jesus. Matthew 26, 28, Jesus said this, this cup, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus not only offers us to drink this cup of forgiveness, But he takes on himself the cup of God's wrath that we've been talking about for the past little bit that we rightfully deserve. And we see Jesus praying in the garden just before his crucifixion. You remember what he said? He said, God, if there's any other way, Father, let this cup, this cup of wrath that's about to come down on me, if there's any other way, let this pass from me. But not my will, but yours be done. Jesus looked forward with anticipation. He, he, he went to the cross joyfully because he knew what was on the other side. So Jesus took this cup of wrath for us. There are two inevitable outcomes, guys. Two things that must happen or can happen. The cup of God's wrath will be poured out upon the wicked, and there's inescapable judgment. The cup of, this number one, number two, the cup of Christ's suffering has been poured out for forgiveness and there's salvation to be received. Cup of God's wrath, it's gonna happen. Number two, the cup of Christ's suffering has been poured out for forgiveness and there's salvation to be received. There's either opposition to God in one's own pride or there's deliverance from God in one's faith. There's either facing the judgment of God as one condemned or the salvation of God as one forgiven. So here are some questions for us to, to wrestle with and to respond to today. How do I stand personally 
How do I stand before a righteous God and incur no judgment that's only fair for me to receive? It's only right. By obtaining the righteousness found in Jesus through faith in his substitutionary sacrifice, whereby he bore my sin, shedding his blood for my forgiveness, and I in turn receive his righteousness. That's how I stand before a righteous God. How do I ensure that I'm not drinking the cup of God's wrath and rather that I drink the cup of God's forgiveness? <clears throat> I got a couple of verses I just want to show you as a means to like, how do I respond? What do I do? John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So what do I do? He's, we've been walking through the book of John. Like he's calling us to believe. Believe that he did take on the cup of wrath himself, and he offers us the cup of forgiveness. Uh, Hebrews 9, 26 through 28. Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Again, man, like how do we talk about judgment and we're in a place of thankfulness? Because we're eagerly waiting, not for the judgment of God's wrath, we're eagerly waiting for the Christ who saved us from it. Right? <clears throat> and then, uh, let's see, lastly in Hebrews 10, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There is no other, other way. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy just on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Like that's what happens with those who set aside the law of Moses uh, when it came to the people of God. How much worse, worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which we're sanctified. So what's going to be my response? What's going to be our declaration? God is the powerful and majestic judge. He's the fair judge who rules over all and moves in his timing, inevitably and without the sway of man. So is this producing in us thanksgiving? Are we remembering that one day God's going to set everything right and he's going to be completely fair? Are we rejoicing that through Jesus, he has delivered us from the bondage of sin? He has delivered us from the wrath of God. Um, this is the last thing I want to say. I'm going to hush. Uh, there's one part. Uh, this was 75 and verse... Uh, Five, God was talking to the boastful, the wicked. He said, don't lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. Some com commentators have said that uh, this is like an animal who stiffens its neck, not wanting the yoke to be put on by their master. So instead of like giving in and humbling themselves before their master to like get the yoke on so they could be taken wherever, they would stiffen their neck and not let the owner do it. And like in the same way, 
This can point to prideful and wicked people who wish not to have the yoke of God placed on them. They kick against God's authority and the purpose of God over them. Jesus says, and this is what's awesome, man. Jesus says that his yoke's easy. His burden's light. And what Jesus offers to us is rest, forgiveness, and salvation. And I've often heard it said, man, how is God a loving God if he condemns people to hell? God condemns people to hell because he's a just God. Because God is a loving God, he doesn't desire to send people there. And he made a way so people don't have to. And that way is himself. And so this morning, if you're like, man, even if you're saying, like, man, I've heard this before. This is no new news to me. Well, I sure hope it's still good news to you. And I hope it brings you to a place of rejoicing. And like me too. I'm like, man, I've heard it too. But I hope it brings me to a place where I can say like Asaph in the congregation, like I'm going to sing this forever. I want to rejoice. And I would also say like, man, the Lord has placed you around people. The field is white, ready for harvest all around this place who need to hear the same news. Who are going to be drinking one of two cups. The cup of God's wrath or the cup of Christ's forgiveness. And this morning, I would say as a time of response, like, be thankful as we rejoice together. There's a reason to sing if you're saved. If you know someone who is lost, like, there's a reason to pray and bring that name before the Lord and ask for their salvation. Right? And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ and his wrath remains on you, This is not a fire and brimstone message, but you can't look at this and escape that there is a coming judgment. God desires for you to be saved. He's a loving judge. Okay? So there's, uh, actually, I forgot to ask our guys to come up because that's how I'll roll. Um, If I can get our team to come back up. Um, And our, our guys who are praying for us this morning, there's going to be some, some folks on the side who you can come up and request prayer, request prayer from, but there's going to be some room up front here, or you could just stay seated in your seat. I would just encourage you to use this as a time to be thankful this morning, to give praise, to thank him that you're bondage to the slavery of sin, you've been set free, or bring somebody before the Lord today that you know needs to be saved. Plead for them, plead on their behalf before God, right? Um, I think it's in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul, Paul says, I urge you, be reconciled to God. I urge you, be reconciled to God. So like, can we plead to God for someone today that they won't have to taste the cup of God's judgment? Um, yeah, so let's stand together. Let's sing, guys. <clears throat> Put you on.